Now I'm going to delve into a whole bunch of material that is more positive or analytical and a little bit less about um, evaluating outcomes and policies, but more how to think about them rationally. So this isn't about being a libertarian per se. Someone who's not a libertarian could agree with maybe everything I say and still not be a libertarian. Just not many people would do that. <laughs> uh, but the first thing I'd like to mention is the, one of the last questions was about whether the welfare state had crowded out a lot of voluntary activity. And I have a book on that topic with a lot of historical material and data. There are copies outside called After the Welfare State. And it's about what preceded the welfare state and was replaced by it. And many people are surprised to find it, it wasn't nothing. It was a vast array of mutual aid uh, societies. Let me make sure I've got this working correctly. Next one. Someone show me how this one, there we go. But the first point is a pretty simple one. Frederick Bastiat, my hero, whom I mentioned uh, last night, a really remarkable, interesting person of great personal integrity who dedicated his life to liberty, distinguished the good economist and the bad. I love Bastiat's works, and it's been one of my life projects to bring them out in every language that has a periodical press, newspapers and books and so on. I've gotten up to about 43 and a few hundred more to go. So that's the, the reason I'm not going to die anytime soon. Uh, but many economists said he was the best economics writer ever. Anyone can understand him. A farmer, a taxi driver, an engineer, a doctor, even a prime minister could understand uh, Bastiat. He's very simple and clear, but very, very good economics. And he distinguished the good economist. There, it's the green button. The good economist and the bad. The bad economist confines himself to the visible effects, and the good economist takes into account both the effect that can be seen and those effects that must be foreseen. What he means by foreseen in this context is the ones you have to think about. And in particular, in contemporary economics, you talk about opportunity costs, the things that didn't happen because something else happened. You can't see it. So when we see a government-built bridge, there it is. We can see it and happy people driving over it. What we don't see is what would have happened had people not been taxed to build that bridge, like the famous bridge to nowhere, which people calculated the money could have bought everyone on the island a really nice boat to get back and forth. It's not like they were isolated on the island starving and then a bridge was brought to them. <clears throat> but that's hard work. and It's a very important part of what Cato does is the opportunity cost. What was lost? But it's hard to talk about it because you can't point to it. It didn't happen. It's what would have happened otherwise. And so a classical liberal, a libertarian approach, or a serious economics approach requires a higher degree of abstract thinking than most political figures engage in. They say, look what I gave you right here. These people benefited from it. <coughs> but they don't talk about the costs what was given up in order to attain that. So that, I think, is the most important simple point in economics. 
There may be visible benefits, but what were the costs, the invisible costs? Now, many people confuse cost and price, two very important concepts, but they're different. We use them interchangeably in English. We say, what is this cost? And I say, it costs uh, $6.95. Not really. That's the price of the book. That's how much you have to give me to get the book. That's the price. The cost is whatever you give up to make that exchange. What would you have done with the $6.95? And the time it took to drive to the bookstore, or to click on the Amazon link, or whatever it happens to be. Every choice has a cost. It does not follow everything has a price. Right? What is the price? How much money would induce you to betray your family to enslavement and torture? $100? It's got to be something. Come on. Right? <laughs> there is no price for decent people. It couldn't pay you enough. But there is a cost of the choice that you make. I might torture you. And of course, you give up the money. So every choice has a cost, but not everything has a price. Those are two different concepts. I want to go through a couple of basic principles of rational choice analysis and look at public policy. And here are some simple principles that I'm going to run through that help us to be more scientific when we think about governmental action or public policy. So the first one, closed behavioral system. That's a complicated way of expressing a basic principle. If I have one account of human behavior that can explain how people behave, it's better than having two or three or five or eight or 25. Now, alternatively, there are some people who say, no, there's a model for economic human action that's in business. Then there's political, then there's religious, then there's social and familial, and so on. But if I could generate a theory that could explain human activity in the family, in a business firm, in a labor union, in a government, that's much more robust. Principle of Occam's razor. You don't want to multiply hypotheses or models of a simpler one will do. So one general theory of human action that can yield testable hypotheses over multiple domains. And economics is a pretty good candidate for that. It can explain a lot of behavior in the family. There's economics of the family, economics of the business firm. But I'm going to talk a little bit more about economics of government and looking at questions of collective choice. One of the points that Madison and others have brought out is when someone goes from being a farmer to being a politician, he doesn't sprout angelic wings and get a halo. Still a normal person like you and me. Right? So people who move into political action don't suddenly acquire a different nature. They're like us. Doesn't mean that they're all bad or that they're all good. Most of us are a mixture of good and bad impulses. We try and suppress the bad ones and try to exercise the good ones. We all have limited information. Politicians do not suddenly acquire unlimited information or unlimited wisdom. They're just people. They're really no different from you and me. So let's look at methodological individualism, the second principle. And this is often misunderstood. 
as someone saying there are only individuals and there are no groups. That's too strong a statement. I don't believe it's true. We should contrast instead with the organic thesis or group personification theses. And there's a historian I like very much named Parker T. Moon, who's a classical liberal historian at Columbia University for many years. And he wrote a very powerful book in 1926 called Imperialism and World Politics. And the great critics of imperialism were not Marxists, as we, as we have been led to believe by Marxist domination of many history and other departments. They were classical liberals. Uh, at the time Marx was writing, he was endorsing imperialism, uh, the British Empire, for bringing history to the ahistoric static peoples of Asia. He had a rather limited understanding of Asian civilization, saying they had no history. And he was endorsing most brutal crimes of European imperial powers at the time. It's only later that Marxism is presented as an anti-imperialist philosophy. It was liberalism that was against imperialism. And the great liberals who opposed it in favored instead free trade, including Adam Smith, Cobden, Bright, and many, many others. In his book, Moon said, we use language in ways that sometimes occludes the truth. We say that France invaded Tunisia. And that's an easy way to do it. But it suggests France is a person, and Tunisia is a person. Maybe France was angry at Tunisia. But he said, in fact, this is just a shorthand for saying 33 million people of many diversified religions and beliefs inhabiting so many hundreds of thousands of square miles of territory. And some among them conscripted some others and forced everyone else to pay the taxes to send them to Tunisia. And that tells us they're interesting questions. Who were those few? And why did the others obey or pay the taxes? And those are the questions of politics. And we miss it when we think of groups as persons. America did this, Russia did that. And I frequently object when I hear people saying, look at what Russia is doing. Russia isn't doing anything. Mr. Putin is doing something. Look at what America is doing. The American government may be doing something, but frequently I disagree with that. And I'm not part of that collective entity that's acting. And when we talk that way, we cover up all the really interesting questions. Why did this happen? Who made these decisions? How did they convince the other people to go along with it? <clears throat> Individualism holds that a group is not another big person, and that's the key distinction. Just like all the individuals who make up a group, America, Germany, New York, whatever it happens to be, this group is a person like you and me, but it's not. It does not follow it's not an entity. There is such a thing as the United States, or America, or Russia, chess clubs, the Roman Catholic Church. These are entities. We can speak meaningfully about them, but they're made up of individuals who are like you and me, numerically individuated persons, numerically and, and materially individuated, to use the term St. Thomas Aquinas, and all of our complex relationships. So the chess club that you may be that you have joined is not a person. 
It's made up of individuals and their relationships. Some are good players, some are beginners. There's the chair, they're the ones who spend all the volunteer time, they're the ones who barely show up. It's all those relationships, just as this building isn't just a big heap of bricks, nor is it a giant brick. It's made up of bricks and material and all their complex relationships is what we call a building. But a building isn't just another brick. So it doesn't mean groups don't exist. Mrs. Thatcher once made this mistake. She said, there's no such thing as groups. There are only individuals. And then she added, and their families. <laughs> Which is interesting, because she couldn't bring herself to say there are no groups. She understood there were families. Those are important human groupings, natural human groupings. So groups are made up of their members and their relationships among them. Or, to put it a bit more clearly, a forest is not just a big tree. A forest is made up of many trees and their complex relationships, and biologists study those. Big trees, little trees, various kinds of predatory behavior, trees taking up all the sunshine, others engaging in actions, we can talk about it uh, loosely, to get access to the sun and rain and so on. So a forest is a complex ecosystem. It's not just another big tree. And social groupings of human beings, whether they're states, businesses, associations, or also associations of individuals who have complex relationships with each other. We want to talk about rationality, and this is a very important principle when dealing with economic analysis, and I would say classical liberalism generally. We have been accused, with some justice, of being the most rational people in politics. Uh, Jonathan Haidt said he has measured this, and people who identify as libertarians are by far the most rational. They think they have the most long-term time horizons. They think about consequences. They ask whether things work. They're much less emotive. They have a, di a different kind of compassion. It's a cognitive empathy rather than just immediately feeling another person's pain. Libertarians tend to be the ones who say, what if I were in that position, would I like it? Which is a very interesting, different kind of empathy than just saying, I feel your pain immediately. <clears throat> what does rationality mean? Well, some people have asserted it means you think about things a long time. Rational people think a lot. Or they're really, really smart. That's what it means to be rational. I don't think so. You can be rational and very intelligent or not very intelligent, various places on the spectrum. You can think a long time or act impulsively and still be rational. A minimal criterion is that you have transitively ordered preferences. So if you're offered an apple and you prefer it to a banana, or rather I'll start backwards, you have the option of a carrot and a banana, you take the banana. Now someone says, well, you take an apple for the banana, you take the apple. So you prefer apples to bananas to carrots. Then if your preferences are transitively ordered, you'll prefer an apple to a carrot and not a carrot to an apple. That's what it means to have transitively ordered preferences. If you didn't have them, you could get into infinite choice loops. Now, this would be a very bad thing. You could not act so as to better your situation. Tom prefers an A to a B and a B to a C. When he's offered a C in exchange for his A, he takes the C. But then someone says, you want a B for that C? Sure, he takes it. 
Then someone offers him an A. Oh, I like A's more than B's. I'll take the A. How about a C in exchange for your A? Sure, I'll take that. He'd end up in an infinite loop. Every choice improved his situation, and he always ended up back where he was. That would be an irrational person. Now, I'm not saying there are no irrational people. There may be. It may be that actually a number of us may be irrational with regard to certain kinds of preferences, notably risk. This is a very uh, complicated issue in rational choice analysis. It may be that many of us are irrational with regard to certain kinds of risk. But it means when you're irrational, you're not able to make decisions that improve your life. And behavioral economics, which has come up a couple times, also has delved into these questions. But rational choice economics had been on this territory uh, for a long time. So I'm not saying there are no such people, nor am I saying that you or I are never this way. We may be with regard to certain kinds of choices some of the time. But in those cases, we're not acting rationally. And economics is primarily about rational behavior, which we can assume covers most of us most of the time. Good enough that we can make reasonable predictions of human behavior. People with intransitively ordered preferences could not improve their situations. If you are systematically endowed with intransitive preferences, you would probably be in an institution because you can't manage your life. And also, people could cheat you very easily. If you ever meet someone with intransitively ordered preferences and you notice that and you're unscrupulous, you can cheat them. And at the end, they'll have nothing and feel every choice made them better off. But don't do that. That's a bad thing to do. I'm going to come back to why transitively ordered preferences is important in a moment. Now, something that Jeff certainly dealt with at great length is the relationship between intentions and consequences. And this is one that may seem obvious, but people get fooled by this all the time. I introduce a bill into Congress. It's the Help Poor People bill. And if you vote against it, you're against poor people. Right? I announce the intention and somehow suggest that's the consequence. But the serious person says, there may be intended consequences, and there may be unintended consequences. They're not the same thing. Intentions and consequences are two different kinds of claims, and we want to find out, were the intentions fulfilled? It's a big problem when you're advocating for liberal principles, and again, I use in the classical sense, because many people will judge you without asking the question, will it work? This is a common experience. Someone says, I'm in favor of raising the minimum wage to a living wage, $15 an hour. Who can be against that? I say, well, I think that's a problem. You're likely to put unskilled people out of work and substitution of machines for labor and all the things that we could say about that. The other person sees me and says, Palmer is a bad man. Because he is against the minimum wage, which is intended to raise wages. He's a bad person. And what do you do when you realize someone is a morally corrupt bad person? You do not listen to that person, because they're trying to trick you. They're morally bad and corrupt, 
like the devil, whispering things in your ears. So stop up your ears. Do not listen to them because they're bad. This is a big problem to overcome. And Jonathan Haidt in his book, I've had uh, talks with Lou and a few other people about it. I'm a big fan of his book, uh, The Righteous Mind, is very useful in psychology to try to understand how to overcome that. Or as it was put years ago uh, by a uh, Berkeley political scientist, very gruff sort of figure from Brooklyn, and he said, let me tell you something. When you talk to those people, they will care what you think only when they think that you care, which I think is quite right. If you want people to understand your arguments, overcome that, demonstrate you're a caring person. But you have to explain intentions and consequences are different things. Now, we make choices between alternate possibilities. It's very common, particularly when describing markets, for someone to do the following. Look at this market behavior. It's imperfect. There was friction, all kinds of problems. There might have been externalities and so on. Therefore, the state must correct this. Maybe so. But we should not assume the state is perfect. It does not follow that if there is market failure that there was necessarily government success. Those two are not connected. There may be government failure as well. And serious people should ask, we need to compare real institutional alternatives. This and that. But not what Harold Demsetz from UCLA used to call nirvana economics. Compare the reality to nirvana. It's always falling short. And so the state is put in place of the nirvana. We assume that they will be able to correct the problem. But they're just people like all the rest of us, with all of the human failings and limitations that we have. So we don't get to choose between reality and nirvana. We get to choose between different alternate possibilities. And that is something most politicians, again, cannot grasp. They have a vision, this will work. I will create this program. It's intended to address this issue. It will work without asking, would there be any unintended consequences? What are the incentives that it creates for different persons? We need to appeal to the right standard of comparison when we make policy choices. Now, some implications. Uh, rules are really, really important. I talked about that last night. We don't get to go out and say, let's choose prosperity, peace, happiness, longevity, that's not on the agenda. Someone may tell you it is, but it's just not. We can choose processes, and we need to have a discussion what processes will lead to the outcomes that you want. Now, in the kind of cost-benefit approach, or consequentialist approach Jeff has laid out, there's an assumption most people agree on what outcomes they want. They want peace, they want to live longer, they want to be prosperous. They want a more harmonious society. There are some people who don't want those things, and we should acknowledge that as well. We may have deep value disagreements with some people. Advocates of national socialism, fascism, and so on, don't just disagree with us over which one will produce more prosperity. 
They don't care. They like war. And if you read their writings, they're very clear about that. What does it mean to be a true human being? It's to kill the enemy. And that's just a great thing. Well, I have a value disagreement with them. I don't think that is the peak of human existence to go killing other people. Might have to do it in self-defense. We might even admire someone who does it. Say, what a brave person to have done that. But it is not itself a great human value. And we disagree with them on that. So that's a case where our cost-benefit analysis won't matter very much to them. Fortunately, there are not that many of those people. But there are some. And at some point, we have to say, I want to live my life, and I want to let other people live their lives. I believe in live and let live. You don't. You want to kill me. We're going to have a conflict. But there are not many people who are like that, fortunately. Most people want the good things in life. Uh, rules matter. They determine outcomes. And they can be chosen. Rules can emerge as spontaneous orders, but they can also be chosen. We can have a discussion. What are the proper rules for our club or association? What is the Constitution? Could the Constitution be changed? And so on. Rules create institutions, and institutions then give form to incentives. Whether something is rewarded or punished, that helps to guide human behavior. Political markets and free markets create different kinds of incentives. And finally, society may not be a rational chooser. I'm going to go back to that question of a preference ordering. So first, rules matter. They can determine outcomes. Uh, Walter Williams, an economist at uh, George Mason, was, would always startle his freshman students. He'd say, he's a very, very tall man and very fine basketball player. Huge, huge hands. He could just pick up the ball with no problem and very tall. And he'd say, I'll bet that I can change, and he had a number, 16 words in the National Basketball Association rule book. And by the end of one season, all of the top players will be women. They say, oh, that's absurd. How is that possible if you had mixed uh, male and female teams? And the rules are, you have to play in high heels. Not many men can do that. Some, I'm sure, but not many. Uh, and before a free shot, you have to knit a very tiny, tiny, elegant piece of Belgian lace, which means you have to have delicate fingers. So his big fingers, big hand, couldn't do that. So very small ch rule changes can generate very large changes in the outcomes. And you see systematically, people will go to change the rules knowing they will lead to outcome changes that they desire. And we've seen this throughout history. Quite often, for instance, racial discrimination in this country and others was facially race neutral. No mention was made of race, but they had a huge impact on different groups, and that was intentional. In the city of Modesto, California, the first zoning ordinance said there shall be no laundries west of the railroad line. 
Who at that time was creating laundries? Chinese people. It was a Chinese Exclusion Act. And there are many, many, many examples of such things that are facially neutral. You wouldn't know. But when you look at its impact, it had a disparative, uh, disparate impact on different groups. And that was intentional. So they can determine the outcomes. I want to give you, though, an example from politics. In the United States, we have, for congressional races and uh, <coughs> most state legislatures and so on, winner-take-all, first-past-the-post, single-member districts. If you run for Congress here, whoever gets the most votes wins. It doesn't have to be a majority. And you get the whole seat. It's not divided into pieces. In contrast, there are other places that have proportional representation. The first one will yield consistently a two-party system where the two parties converge on each other. They contest what's called the median voter. Median voter means half are on one side and half are on the other. It's not the same as the usual sense of average or centerpiece. I remember the New York Times years ago had a delightful story which pointed out statistics had just shown fully half of New Yorkers earn below the median income. <laughs> uh, someone had to point out that's always true everywhere. <coughs> but the median is where the contest is going to take place. And Anthony Downs demonstrated this very effectively in his economic theory of democracy in 1957. In contrast, proportional representation says if you get 5% of the vote, or 3 or 4 or 7 or whatever it happens to be in the jurisdiction, you get representation. Germany has that. Belgium has that. Many other countries have that. And that will yield a multi-party system. It was a very robust response to those people who said that the American and British voting systems were a result of the genius of the Anglo-Saxon people. And in contrast, Belgium, this is the Belgian parliament, all of the different parties arrayed there, and that's the American parliament. We have two parties, and they pretty much divide it up. They're fairly close at the moment. The Belgian par parliament includes a wide array of political ideologies and views. And the old view was that is because the Belgians are a wild and tempestuous people. Uh, but this was said by people who had never been to Belgium. Uh, I don't think they find anything particularly crazy or wild about Belgians. They just have a different voting system. And if you get, if you meet the threshold, you get into Parliament. Well, the consequence of this, these two rules, it's huge, absolutely huge. Because under the American system, or any winner-take-all, first-past-the-post, single-member district system, if you have one party, and as you're moving to approach the other to compete for voters, the ones on your far right or far left flank may become angry. They may say, we're going to form a separate party. But what happens in America if you form a third party? What is the one phrase you hear over and over? You're throwing away your vote. You're wasting your vote. Because if you're on the blue side, and you decide you're way over here, the blues are getting a little bit too red or pink, I'm going to vote hardcore blue party, you're just going to deny them 
the votes to get a majority. You're going to elect the other side, the side you hate the most. You're wasting your vote. And the same for the other side. So the parties will converge and contest the median voter. But that's what you get. You don't have to talk about the genius or the Anglo-Saxon peoples to explain this difference or how outlandish and wild Belgians are. Uh, rules can also be chosen. Now, there's a key distinction. You can choose a move within a game, and then you can choose the game or the rules of the game that you're going to play. I'll give you a simple example. We're in this game in the United States with regard to religion called live and let live. One person goes to a Baptist church, another to a Catholic church, another one to a Reform synagogue, another one to an Orthodox synagogue, someone goes to a Sunni mosque, a Shia mosque, another person just goes out for a barbecue, and we can all live together fine. That's a game, it's called live and let live, and it's pretty stable. Or you can play the game that says, who gets to decide the religion of the state? And in that game, whoever wins burns down the churches, synagogues, or mosques of the losers, tortures their leaders, and brainwashes their children into the winning religion. It's a fun game. <laughs> and people have played it many, many, many times. And it generates unending conflict and war. And within that game, there's a logic to it. We, I saw it play out in front of me in Yugoslavia. When Yugoslavia broke up, it was along roughly religious lines, but not for religious reasons, by the way. It was a rather different case. Because the old joke was you had Serbs, Croats, and Bosniaks as the main parties. A Serb was defined as someone who did not go to the Orthodox Church. A Croat was someone who does not go to a Catholic Church. And a Bosnian is someone who does not go to the mosque. It wasn't actually the theology. It was just dividing up different groups. Who would be dominant in the state? Well, people who were born of a Croat mom and a Serbian dad did not identify clearly with one or the other. They had a very hard time of it. And many of them were killed or left the country. And at one time, there were people who were known as Catholic Serbs and Orthodox Croats. You will not find any anymore. Because the rule was, you have to be on a team. And if you're on a, not on a clear team, neither team will trust you. You have to make a choice. And so those people were uh, eliminated early on. Now going from that game to the game we play in this country and other countries with more or less liberal constitutions is not easy. It's not easy to transition from one game to another. But that's what we're about. We want to change the rules of the game. We understand once you have the rules, people will behave in certain ways. What we want to do is institute different rules. Under live and not live, people get along much better. Right? Your kids go to the same school. You may be a strong believer in one religion. The family of those kids is another. But you're, both, you're all members of the PTA and your kids are in the scout troop, or whatever it happens to be together. And we can live together well because we've removed religion from public choice. Religion is entirely a matter of private choice. 
It is not removed from life. It has been made part of private choice. Now, there's an interesting uh, view, uh, consequence many people have considered paradoxical. Richard Dawkins uh, brought this out. He complained in a lecture I attended. He said, how is it that the United States is such a religious country? And yet, there's no state support for religion at all. Why, in Europe, we have state support of religion, and not many people go to church anymore. And my colleague David Bowes pointed out, you're a theorist of evolution, Mr. Dawkins. Think about it. Namely, in America, churches compete to attract followers. Right? Do we have a good environment? Is it good spiritually counseling? Good spiritual counseling? Is it spiritually rewarding for me that I would go and voluntarily give? Or to take another example, uh, relatives of mine had come from Germany quite a few years ago and stayed with me, and they wanted to go to a Catholic church, and so I told them uh, where it was, and uh, they went and came back. I said, "How was it?" They said, oh, "It was nice, but..." It was it was really tasteless. It was a tasteless experience. I said, how so? They asked us for money. I said, okay, uh, yeah, that's terrible. And I said, well, Germany, they don't do that so much because it's state-supported. You pay the church tax. If you're a Catholic or evangelical, you pay the church tax. And, uh, and I said, you notice when you go to mass in Germany, are there many people there? No, no, it's mainly very old people. I said, hmm. Do you see any kids there? No, almost never. I said, were there a lot of children at the American Catholic Church you went to? Yeah, a lot of them. And did they put a coin into the collection plate, even a very small coin? Yes. I said, think about it, right? It's a competitive system, and people feel like they belong. Now, state support of the church is intended to support the church, but it turns out it hasn't made people more religious. In the United States, we do not have state support of church. You could say tax deductibility, but that's actually pretty minor. Uh, we do not have the state taxing you to pay for the church, and people are far more religious in this country. <clears throat> so. The rules of the game matter. And those rules create institutions, and institutions give form to incentives. So for all of our post-colonial theorists, I doubt there are many here, um, what holds countries back if they were ever colonized, you can never make it again. Right? Or if you're behind, you can never catch up. All kinds of theories of uh, uh, development economics. And this picture is a very good test of that. Everyone can see. That's the Korean Peninsula, photographed at night from a very tall ladder. <laughs> and we have North Korea and South Korea. Both of them were colonized by the Japanese. Both were subject to brutal uh, Japanese imperialism, the attempt to exterminate their culture. They were forbidden to speak Korean. The mass rapes that took place the Korean comfort women who were the sex slaves of the Japanese Imperial Army, uh, and so on. And yet, 
the North, which at the end of the Korean War had more industrial capacity than the South, where so much of the war had been fought, doesn't seem to have created a great deal of light. So what explains the difference? Language, culture, or is it maybe the institutions? The Korea, South Korea is one of the wealthiest nations in the world, and North Korea possibly the poorest. Now, there are different incentives in different kinds of markets. We can talk about political markets and free markets. One of the key features of a political market, because it's a compulsory group, all of us are required to pay dues, if you want to think about it that way. Political actors can concentrate benefits to small numbers of people and spread the costs over large numbers. And this explains a great deal of rent-seeking or predatory behavior in politics. Simple act of a small tax. Every one of us pays a tiny amount. Or, a better example, sugar subsidies and sugar import restrictions. Sugar is more expensive in the United States because we restrict terrible, wicked cane sugar from the Caribbean and Brazil in order to make sure eight sugar producers in the United States, in Louisiana and Florida, have uh, uh, control over the markets and, small number, and also beet farmers in the Midwest. It's a really stupid way to produce sugar. So we pay more. But every time you buy a little bit of sugar, put it in your tea or coffee, it costs you a fraction of a cent. It's very small. But aggregate that together, you've got millions and millions and millions of dollars. And someone will come to Washington to lobby for that, those concentrated benefits. They all know each other. But I don't know all the sugar consumers in America. And indeed, uh, we will be rationally ignorant about it. Most Americans have no idea how this system works. It's not worth it to become informed. It will cost more than you might benefit. So even if we organized the sugar-consuming lobby and marched on Washington, you have to pay for air tickets, thousands of times what you pay for this sugar subsidy. It's not worth it even to become informed. And once you have those things, they're very hard to get rid of it. We just found this with Obamacare. Once it's installed, it's created a set of beneficiaries, and it's going to be very hard to undo that. Ratcheting it back is not easy. And then finally, the idea of expressive voting. When people vote, the cost of casting a vote is very small. I spend an hour to go wait in line someplace. And I might do something extremely harmful to my neighbors, something I would never do on my own if I were doing it as an individual. I've had some discussions with a few people here about this. Who would go and break down their neighbor's door with a fire axe burst in with a gun, threaten the grandmother, and then gun them down because they might have a plant. Do you know anyone who would do that? But people will go and vote to do that because the vote's easy. I'm against marijuana, and actually I am. I don't like it. I don't like being around it. I, unlike our past three presidents, I admit that I tried it, um, and, and I did inhale, and I didn't like it a long, long time ago. I said, this is not for me, it's not part of my life. I don't even like the smell of it. And that's me. But assuming 
I didn't like marijuana enough I could go vote against it, and the consequences other people have their doors broken down and threatened with physical force and even killed. Didn't cost me anything to do that, but it's generated massive amounts of harm. I would never have done that if I had to pay for it, but instead, if I vote for marijuana laws, I can make everyone else pay for it. I expressed my preference almost costlessly. And a lot of very harmful behavior emerges from that. And let me then turn to this idea of society being a rational chooser. The impossibility theorem, Condorcet, Dodgson, Arrow, and others all discovered this independently. Let's say that we have a preference rule. 50% plus one have to vote for something. It may turn out that if you have three or more options, and this is always the case, look at all the different options on health care reform, multiple options, you may end up with a society with non-transitively ordered preferences. So let me give you a simple choice. This is an old version of it. Uh, military policy. We have three groups, three sets of preferences, and three options. So this is just an idealized form. Political scientists have identified this many, many, many times in actual legislative situations, also in committees and colleges and so on. We have hawks, doves, and I'll call them UN types. The first choice of the hawk with regard to the Taliban or ISIS or Al-Qaeda is bomb them, B for bombing. Bomb them. Second choice, don't do anything, man. You do not want to get involved in a protracted land war in that part of the world. And third choice is GT, ground troops. We know people who would give you that set of answers. Bomb them, whoa, do not get dragged into a land war. Their least preferred option is ground troops. Doves, they say, dude, like bombs, like kill people and stuff. So <laughs> like I'm against it. So they say they favor nothing. Second, they say you can't bomb them because like the bomb will fall in a kindergarten in a hospital. It's ground troops, get them down in the ground. And bombing is their third preferred option. It's a coherent set of preferences. And finally, the UN type, they love ground troops more than anything. One blue-helmeted soldier for every indigenous person. <laughs> Follow them around. And second, they say, you can't do nothing. You have to do something. Bomb them. Right? And finally, nothing is their third option. So these are coherent sets of preferences. Now we're going to have a vote. What do you prefer, bombing or nothing? And if we go back to our list, we had hawks prefer bombing to nothing, and UN types prefer bombing to nothing, so that's, that's two to one. Okay, so we get bombing. But someone says, what about ground troops? We didn't vote on that. Well, we can go back here. And ground troops is preferred to bombing by doves, and UN types, so ground troops is preferred to bombing, but what, what about have a vote? What, what if we had a vote between nothing and ground troops? Well, let's see. Oops, sorry. Uh, nothing is preferred to ground troops by hawks and doves. So we're back where we started. We would have a choice loop, and indeed, this is more common than you think. It tells you some interesting uh, uh, consequences. It matters what order you vote in. And the people who set the agenda can determine the outcome. 
Speaker of the House is a very powerful office. Gets to determine what votes come up and in what order. And that will determine the outcome. Now the reason for this is an interesting outcome in political science, but more significantly, it undercuts the idea that, that society is this big rational chooser. So anytime you hear society chose, just be skeptical. Is society a person? Did society have rationally uh, ordered preferences or not? And then the last point I want to leave you with is from economics. And this is very important, and I've, I've never seen a, many economists teach this very well. It's one of the most important points in economics. It will illuminate the world, not just trade, but all kinds of things. Comparative advantage and absolute advantage, they're frequently confused, but they're very different concepts. And comparative advantage is the foundation of all human cooperation. Ludwig Mises called it the Ricardian law of association, the most fundamental foundation for human cooperation. When people exploit their comparative advantage, they make those things, goods or services, that they can produce at the lowest cost and then exchange the results, they can consume more than they can produce. So let's go through and see how that is. I have a two-person, two-good economy. You could add more people. It doesn't change. It just makes it takes longer to explain it. They are randomly chosen names, Tom and Lisa Conyers. Who's, there's going to be movie night tonight, by the way, with Lisa's movie. And we have fish and apples. Now assume each one, look at what is their production frontier, what's their maximum product for each good. Tom, if he spends all day fishing, he can collect 50 fish. He's pretty good. Or he can collect 50 apples. Lisa's a lot better at everything. She could catch 100 fish. And when it comes to appling, she's the best. She can get 200 apples. So she has the absolute advantage. She's very good at this stuff. Now, each one of them had mothers who said, you need a balanced diet, sweetheart. Some apples, some fish. So each one of them divides their time 50-50. Tom produces 25 and 25, and Lisa 50 and 100. So the mathematical ratios are constant. But Lisa proposes a trade. She's smart. And you might think, why would someone so amazing as Lisa want to trade with someone like Tom? In economic, technical terms, Tom is a loser. Just <laughs> not good at anything. So why would Lisa want to trade with a loser? Well, she comes along and proposes a trade. I'll give you 37 apples for 25 of your fish. He thinks about it. He says, well. Hmm. If I wanted 37 apples, I'd have to give up 37 fish. But she's offering me for, 12, for 25. Hmm. Okay, I'll do it. So he agrees. Now, he goes from 25 apples to zero, so he can double the number of fish from 25 to 50. She goes from 50 fish to 25, reducing by 50%, so she can increase by 50% of the amount of time appling. She goes from 100 to 150. There's no hidden wires or mirrors. All the numerical ratios are the same. And now they trade. Tom had 50, and he gives 25. He has the same. She had 25. Now she has 50. She has the same as before trade. But now Tom has 37 apples, 12 more than he would have had without trading, 
and Lisa has 113. That's 13 more. How, how did that happen? That's kind of cool. And it's so cool, it's maybe the most important principle in economics. Paul Samuelson was once asked the question, can you name anything in economics that isn't A, obvious, and is B, important? And he thought, and he said this, this is not obvious, and it took people hundreds of years to work it out. Why do people engage in specialization and trade? Well, despite being less productive in absolute terms than Lisa, Tom is a more efficient producer of fish. You remember, one fish cost Tom one apple. But for Lisa, one fish cost two apples. Her cost of production is twice Tom's. Even though she's better at everything, her production cost, what she gives up, is higher, twice as much as it is for Tom. Tom is a more efficient producer of fish. And he specializes in that, and he's a less efficient producer of apples. When they trade together, they're both better off when they specialize and then trade. There's a greater surplus. Now, when you think about that, think about everything you hear coming from the Trump administration on trade. And none of them understand this. Simply none of them. And I, I won't say on Pence's side, he has all the grown-ups work for the vice president's staff. Uh, but on the presidential side, it's just, it's heartbreaking to hear the things that they come out with on a trade question. So rational choice analysis can illuminate the worlds of production exchange, politics, violence, just about any kind of human interaction. But I want to leave with one thought. It doesn't mean it's the only way to understanding or the only science that matters. Anthropology and psychology and sociology and many other fields also illuminate human behavior. But rational choice in economics does help to shine a light on a great deal of human behavior and to explain things otherwise inexplicable. And with that, we have a little bit of time. And I look forward to your thoughts. So if we could bring up the uh, microphone. And I should point out, as if anyone's thinking about it, there's a really horrifying, terrible book that came out recently, Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean, which is an attack on public choice economics. And I've just started it. And it's one of the most shocking books uh, I've ever read in my life. And she asserts that it was all invented in a conspiracy by James Buchanan. Uh, but if you read James Buchanan, he says it was because he read Mafio Pantaleone and Giovanni Montemartini and Knut Vixell, uh, who were Italian and Swedish economists. Uh, but it's all an astonishing smear. And so I was talking right here uh, about this coming out, that if you believe in public choice economists, uh, then you're a racist and a uh, advocate of slavery and so on and so forth. It's an astonishing uh, piece of work. She managed to take Tyler Cowen out of context as a friend of ours. And Tyler had written a piece in which he said, well, about checks and balances on power. He said, it's true. If you remove checks on power, you increase the chance of getting a really good outcome. That's the quote. He's against all checks on power. 
left off the next clause that said, unfortunately, you also increase the chance of getting a really terrible outcome, which suggests that he's in favor of dictatorship, which when in fact his point was exactly the opposite. Any last thoughts then? Okay. I've solved all the questions. And we are going to uh, have uh, compulsory free time. All of you are expected to be jolly. Oh, we have one, one point here. Thank you. Well, Just time I, for one, okay. Yeah, okay. I'm Juan from Argentina. I wanted to say that I, I'm here. I, I've been here in the States for three weeks and I feel you know, like government sober because I wasn't you know, ruled by my, govern for, my government for three weeks. That ah, feels okay. really nice, you know. I have a question regarding uh, the, the Condorcet uh, paradox. You mm -hmm. know, the first time I studied rational choice theory, uh, it's striking me, I'll take it to my, my field of expertise, which is the law. And I thought in, in a country just like the US when the, the, the judiciary is pretty much the, the designer of the law and taking in, in consideration that uh, what you said about the Condorcet paradox that the, the order of voting may change the outcome. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that uh, the law is in a certain way a product of chance? You mean law in terms of law that's emerged from the common law or law uh, yeah, out of legislation? Yeah, the, the common law, the common law. Yes, of course. And there are lots of examples of path dependency, things that turned out a certain way, could have been otherwise. But even in those cases, we find certain kinds of outcomes are more likely to be stable than others. So take a very simple case. It's not a, a deep principle of law. Do you drive on the left or on the right? It doesn't matter so long as everyone does the same thing. Right? So some countries, Japan, uh, they drive on the left side, drive on the right in Canada, works out OK. Uh, when Sweden switched from left-hand driving to right-hand driving, there was a group of moderates who said, instead of doing this overnight, let's do it j gradually. Just have trucks <laughs> at first. Um, so it, it doesn't matter which one you ended up with, so long as it's consistent. So that's a, an example where it's irrelevant. But what matters is that you be on some side of the road rather than on both. So the Indian approach, which is for all lanes to be sort of fluid, um, uh, maybe is not the most conducive. Although even in India, there are fewer traffic accidents than people think because people don't actually want to be in accidents. So they, they will bear a lot of the consequence themselves. But in any case, there are also examples about what constitutes a contract, right? Does there have to be consideration or merely an agreement? Well, different legal systems and different legal standards, they differ on these kinds of questions. But the principle of what a contract is is still pretty constant across different legal systems and the importance of contract, even though what constitutes it, it was chance and randomness that determined it was this way here and another way somewhere else. But some outcomes were more stable than others. Take another very simple point, uh, a principle that does seem to emerge universally. First come, first serve. Right? has a very high salience and it seems to be a universal human principle uh, because third come first served doesn't work out very well because everyone will strategically hold back 
until two other people go ahead and then be the third one, right? So that doesn't work. Or the principle that children work out on their own. Small kids can figure this out. They have a, a cake, one child gets to cut it, and the other one gets to choose it. This is, everyone figures that out uh, very early on because they realize the two children have a veto over it, and that's usually a very stable outcome. And a lot of legal principles emerge differently but converge on the same uh, fundamental principles. Thank I hope you. that's helpful. Yes, sir. Hello, I'm Manuel, I'm from Spain. Uh, my question is a little bit off topic, but given your international background, I think I can shed some light. I wonder why in the States, given that your government is not that big in comparison to Europe, for example, and where there are, where there is more freedom, you have less oppression from the government, how come libertarianism is getting so much traction to the point to be the third political force, while in Europe, in Spain, where I'm from, it's, uh, well, we are very, very limited. We are very, very, very little people that support libertarianism. Actually, the third political party in Spain right now is the one, are the populist Podemos, which are the ones supported by Venezuela or, or Iran. And, and I, given that we have much more oppression from the state and, and look like the more oppression for the state, the more difficult for libertarianism to come out, Will we have any, some, any, I'm not sure that any I would, hope? I, I'm not sure I'd agree with the premise to begin with. If you look at property rights protection in the United States, it's weaker than it is in Germany or Denmark or a number of other countries. Uh, we have less secure property rights in land in this country by far than many European countries. Um, transfer payments uh, tend to be uh, a higher percentage of the national budget in most European countries than in the U.S., but the trend has been for the U.S. to rapidly catch up in those areas. So it's not entirely clear to me that Europe, as people thought of it years ago, was somehow more statist than the United States. I, I don't think that's true anymore, just to be honest. And if you look at the economic freedom of the world rankings, the U.S. dropped quite precipitously uh, in the last 20 years, and some European countries have done very well. Uh, Europe removed a great many barriers to entry in markets that the United States maintained, so it's a complicated comparison. Uh, I differ ever so slightly in emphasis from Jeff's perspective. When he talked about small government, I also favor small government, but I think that the smallness is a is a uh, feature of whether it's limited. A more limited government will tend to be smaller. But I'll give you two different governments. This one has 100 employees, let's say. And this one has 70. So this one's bigger than this one, right? Except in this one, those 70 employees have the power to break into your house and rifle through your papers. And in this one, they don't. They're policemen who protect you from robbers. Well, which one has more freedom? In some sense, this one has a bigger government, but this one has a more unlimited government. And I would say there's arguably more freedom here than here. So I, I, I'm not sure that the, the, the portrayal of all European countries or even the average as being less free than the US is true anymore. The second thing is 
in some ways, Europe had a more robust libertarian presence in political life for a long time than the US did in terms of people willing to articulate and argue these things. So the traditions of classical liberalism went into eclipse for a longer period in the US and then came back, really started in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and up to today, where it's a part of the political intellectual landscape of the United States. But for a long time, if you said, I'm a libertarian, a certainly classical liberal, people would just look at you just dumbfounded. What, what does that mean? It doesn't make any sense to them that you, you actually want government not to read your mail, not to tell you what to consume or eat or drink, uh, not to dictate uh, uh, your marital life, and not to take money from you, and not to run your business out of the, into the ground, and so on. They said, who would believe something like that? That would be like freedom for everything. Uh, but there were European liberals for a long time who maintained those arguments, and they were part of intellectual life uh, for quite substantially. So uh, in the U.S., libertarianism reemerged in maybe a somewhat more distilled or pure or radical form, whatever term you want to use. But liberal ideas had a substantial intellectual and even political continuity in much of Europe during that time. So the Free Democratic Party in Germany, it's not a libertarian party, but it is a liberal party. And since the war, they have held up free markets, limited government, personal freedom, tolerant, open society as a standard through all that time. And most of the time, there was no one arguing that in the US outside of Milton Friedman and a handful of intellectuals. So don't be so depressed <laughs> about Thank you. that. Okay, very good. Well, we will see you then uh, after your compulsory free time at the reception at 6.30. And then 7 o'clock, we've got a special treat, which is uh, a dinner date, dinner and a movie. And Lisa Conyers will be lead, leading us through a description of a very powerful documentary she did for uh, PBS. See you soon.